getting out of an abusive relationship early makes a huge difference. And I'm proud to say I did come in as a victim, but I am a survivor. Then I could see my mom. My mom was walking toward us. And I got excited. And I was like, there's my mom. And then he didn't stop. I'm trying to keep it together, I said. I gave in to the tears. And I hated that. It, it's not necessarily the easiest process. It's not necessarily the prettiest process, but it is the most effective process. Like, you can do this. I'm going to tell you 100% you can do this, and you're so worth it to do this. I'm sure losing any child is is a real arrow through your heart, but, but uh, you know, she was, she was great. She was a, a, a friend and a family member and our daughter. There is one thing stronger in me than fear, and that's my determination. And now, here's your host, Jen Lee. Welcome back. This is Jen Lee, the creator and host of I Need Blue, Survivors Talk Surviving. Visit www.ineedblue.net for additional stories. As you listen, if the message moves you, share the story with friends and family. The more we share, the more we learn, and the more we can help. Please note, I Need Blue does contain sensitive topics, which could be triggering. Please seek help if needed, and remember, you always come first. August, for some, represents back to school. I remember my mom taking my sister and I to Kmart to purchase all of our school supplies. We would do school clothes shopping, and slowly we had to go to bed a little earlier to get ready for the school schedule. I remember being excited to see my friends again, but the thought of starting over because it was a new year with tougher classes, new teachers, and new kids to deal with, there was some apprehension. Fortunately for me, I had my parents and my sister. My sister and I were only two years apart, so we rode the same bus and attended the same school the majority of the time. I had the support, love, and encouragement I needed each year. For some kids who are still trying to find a forever home, back to school is a reminder they don't have support. It's another new social situation which is just downright scary. And homework? Who is going to help with that? During May in Brevard County, Florida, there were 1,046 kids in dependency court. As if that statistic isn't alarming enough, not each child has a volunteer, a guardian ad litem. The guardian ad litem is a child's eyes and ears. They advocate for their well-being to make sure they are getting what they need. Today's episode is filled with love, passion, and purpose. My first guest, Mary, was removed from her home during her sensitive teen years. She had been sexually abused by a family member. As you hear her describe how these events left her emotionally devastated at an age where navigating such things were already challenging, you will learn how asking questions is key. Today, Mary is a volunteer, a guardian ad litem to advocate for a child. She asks the questions and gets the answers so a child has the best possible path for their future success. My next guest is Jenny James. She is a child advocate manager. 
She provides support for volunteers. When you take on the rewarding journey of becoming a guardian ad litem, you have support always. Jenny is here to share her journey and explain the ways she supports volunteers. It is a team effort. Also here today is Cynthia Rickard. She is a volunteer recruiter. Currently, there are not enough volunteers. Not every child in dependency court has an advocate. You will be touched by this episode. And if you find yourself asking the question, maybe I can do this. Cynthia is the lady we will connect you with. She loves educating and connecting people. Ladies, I am thankful each of you are here to talk about your role in helping our children find a forever home. Welcome to the I Need Blue podcast. Hello, this is Cynthia Rickard, the volunteer recruiter with the Guardian at Lightem program, and I'm just very grateful to be here this morning. Hello, my name is Mary. I'm in Guardian at Lightem. Thank you for having me. Hi, this is Jenny James. I'm the Child Advocate Manager from the Guardian Program. Thanks for having us. Ladies, it is my pleasure. Let's begin this episode with Mary. As noted in the introduction, you are a survivor of sexual assault. And then you took that experience and decided to use it as a way to help other children. Thank you for sharing your story with us. Yes, thank you. I really appreciate you having me. When I was seven years old, I was sexually abused by a family member, and it was ongoing for a long period of time. As all secrets go, that one couldn't stay a secret. So family members, other members, close ones started to discover what was happening. But when they discovered it, no one did anything about it. Like a lot of families, they they cover it up and they hide it. It wasn't ever addressed. It was never talked to me other than two instances where they were just like, yeah, we're aware of what happened and it's over now. It's not going to happen again and kind of move on with your life from there. But what happens when you're so young at the time I was seven, it changes who you are inside and it changes your ability to bond with your own family, your ability to be part of the family. And as the years went on and I kind of go through puberty and become more aware of my surroundings and my own body, I became an angry, screaming person. I was screamed out against everything around me. I wasn't able to to be part of my family. I wasn't able to be part of society. I wasn't able to be part of anything around me. I almost rejected the notion that anybody, even in my family, could possibly care about me. So because you rejected all of that, was there any place where you felt safe? I think one of the the common misconceptions that I hear often about foster care is that everybody is there because their parents don't love them or their family doesn't want them. And in my case, that that wasn't true. I mean, I did come from a family that loved me and wanted me, but through extreme sort of generational dysfunction and a lot of untreated mental illness in my family, I did feel loved and I did feel safe and I did feel wanted on one hand. And then on the other hand, I felt as though I just simply wasn't part of them. I wasn't like them. I wasn't part of them. I was different from them. Wow, that's so complex. And I've never heard it described that way, but it makes so much sense. So as these um, years, as they went on, 
what would look like from the outside world is just an out of control teenager, a teenager who just will break all the rules, do whatever they want, you know, truancy, getting arrested, when in reality, that's not what was, you know, really going on at the root of it, at the crux of it. It was a family full of dysfunction, mental illness, and full of secrets. And then somebody sometimes often becomes sort of the one that gets pointed out as the problem person, because they are always questioning everything going on around them. So the family sort of will band together as this is the problem person, this is the one causing all the trouble, when really they're the truth speaker, they're the one saying there is a problem here, this isn't normal. Was there any type of therapy? I know you said this kind of, there was a lot of family history. Was there any help? No, all through those years, I did not get any therapy until at age 14, I was uh, locked up in a facility for girls. And this is in Portland, Oregon. But what they did is they used DPT, dialectal behavioral therapy. And it changed my life going there. You would think like a lockup facility is bad. You get these imageries of juvenile detention centers or you see these things on TV all the time. Everybody's scared. I went in. I, I went in kicking and screaming. They, they drug me in, the police officers, and I'm, I'm kicking and screaming and I'm thinking, I'm, you know, I'm going to be here for the rest of my life because when you're 14, that's what, you know, that's what you think your life is, is about to end. <laughs> so. I went in kicking and screaming, and I probably bucked the system for the first three months. It ended up in isolation and uh, a lot of time to spend and think about myself before I finally kind of gave myself over to the treatment. It changed the way I thought about things forever. It changed the processes and how I approach things and how I thought about them inside my own mind. I was supposed to be there until I turned 18, but through hard work with both me and my family. My family had to dedicate 30 hours of treatment to the program. So they dedicated a lot of time also. So between me and my family, I got out uh, nine months. We hear news stories daily about children being removed from homes due to abuse, abandonment, or neglect. We assume there is a program that will speak up for these children. The Guardian Ad Litem office does just that. In Florida, Guardian Ad Litem provides the child with an attorney, a trained volunteer, and a certified child advocate manager. All three work together focusing on the child's safety, welfare, and best interests. In what ways did it change you? First of all, I, I wasn't even asking myself questions before I went in there. I wasn't asking, why do I behave the way I behave? Why do I feel as though I am not a part of anything? Why do I have so much anxiety? Why do I have so much anger? And as a teenage girl, uh, it, it happens often, and not, but not in every case, but you become very sexually promiscuous if you've been sexually abused. You have no sanctity of self anymore. Why am I acting out in all of these ways? And they forced me to look inwardly and ask myself a lot of questions about who I am and why I'm behaving this way and face it, you know, front on, but not only face it by myself, but face it with my family. So they work to make you recognize your trauma and the memories. And I imagine they reinforced in you that what happened to you is not normal. 
that it wasn't okay and it wasn't your fault. Absolutely. Absolutely. But they also taught you about what happens to your brain as a young child when you become sexually abused that changes who you are and it changes your development. Even something as simple as other preteen girls, 10, 11 years old, who are starting to get excited about boys and they're talking about boys, but you already have all of this knowledge, but you can't share that with them. So suddenly you become a liar inside even your group of friends. You're pretending like you don't know. You're pre- everything's fake. Everything's You're pretending your way through the world. And then there's a lot of guilt and shame, not only from the abuse, but then everything that happens to cover up the abuse. There are several people who it gets buried and they don't remember the abuse until they have flashbacks. But it sounds like you kind of carried it top of mind for you that it was just present all the time. Yes, I would definitely agree with that. It it was not only present in my mind, but through smells, through sounds, through textures. It never left me. It was always there. And then the feeling that I was part of the perpetration of that abuse, like I was part of it because it was treated like a dirty secret. And in my mind, if you were a victim, why would everybody try to cover it up like that? Another thing that they taught me about in therapy that's not very often discussed is that your body is a human body. And so sometimes it's going to respond to stimulus. In my case, I remember responding to the stimulus of the abuse at seven years old. There were parts of it that I found enjoyable. That is something that creates an even bigger feeling of shame inside your own mind, because now that the perpetrator has made you as a young child enjoy the feeling of what's happening. So you now feel like you're part of it instead of being something that's happening to you. You feel like you become part of the abuse. So age 14, you found this treatment that was just so helpful to you. And I'm thankful for you that you found that as well. Your parents were involved in the process. Is that correct? That's correct. Before I went there, I spent um, a few years in foster care and I never had a guardian. Um, I'm not sure um, if it just at the time this was Portland, Oregon. So I'm not sure if it just wasn't common use in the 90s or if they just didn't have any available. But I can only imagine how things would have been different for me if I had had a guardian to talk to, because really I didn't have anybody on my side to talk to. I can only imagine if I had had someone to talk to me one-on-one and to speak to me one-on-one, which I don't recall ever having at any point until I got into Rosemont. They signed me over to the state when I was uh, at 14, and then I went into Rosemont. They were court-ordered to spend 30 hours of therapy through their program as well. Looking back, I had a smart judge because the judge did say, you know, this is a family. This is a family issue. This isn't a child issue. And that's often how it gets looked at. Like this child, this is a child issue, not a family issue. You know, someone that's 10, 11 years old doesn't get into uh, the positions that they're in on their own. They get there as a group. What did your family take away from the treatment place? You know, that's a good question. It's something that I would have to ask them. I know that they had a greater respect for me after the treatment place. They treated me verbally when they talked to me. They treated me with more honor and respect. I don't know how much they personally internalized for themselves, 
but they did begin to treat me differently. Okay. Let's fast forward a little bit. Tell me where your life journey is headed. I had three children since then. And and all the while, I'm always thinking I, I want to use my life experiences to help other people. When I was 19, I originally heard of the CASA program and I began the training for that. But it triggered me too much. As I was doing some of the training, I was just like, I'm not ready for this. Some, even some nights I just kind of lay in bed and cry. I'm not, you know, I can't do this yet. I'm not ready. And I put it out of my mind. But after raising my three kids, uh, two of them have left the house now. I only have one left in the home. And I've spent years working on myself <laughs> inside my own mind. I have all of this like mama bear energy left <laughs> that even though they've left the house, I'm still full of it. You know, I'm still in there. Like I, I want to reach children. I want to help them. And there's also this notion, like as they grow up, you just look at your kids and you're like, I didn't do a bad job. <laughs> look, look at them. They're fantastic. <laughs> I decided to reach out to the Guardian Ad Litem program and working with Cynthia and Jennifer James to see how I can use my experiences to help other kids. Can you tell us a little bit about what that journey has been like when you started it and where you are today? So for me, it started at the beginning of the pandemic. My original introduction was when I was 19. I'm 45 now. So there's a huge lifetime in between there. But at the beginning of the pandemic, everything kind of goes on lockdown. And then my two older kids who were adult children living in the house were like, mom's lost her mind. We need to move out now. <laughs> so, and I was like, no, wait, come back. I can change. <laughs> but, so they moved out at the same time. And I, uh, I was not emotionally prepared for that. Yeah, the empty nest. Yeah, exactly. The empty nest. And for the first, you know, kind of six months, I was just sitting around like, what do I do with myself now? I, I've dedicated all of my time and energy and into forming these human beings <laughs> into apparently uh, functioning adults in society. <laughs> that's when I reached out. There's a side story to this that's very important because it, if it didn't happen, then I wouldn't have come back to this, went to visit my daughter and a niece and nephew of mine came to visit us while we were there. During that visit, they told me about a family member sexually abusing them. One of the things that I think is most important in this is I had a sense that there was something going on with uh, these children. And because of my own abuse in my own life, um, I felt that maybe I was projecting feelings and I was being too hypervigilant and I didn't ask the right questions. I didn't, I didn't want to be too intrusive. I kind of thought, well, I'll uh, tackle this with the adults. So I kept telling the adults around the children, like maybe they should get into some therapy because I recognize some of the behaviors. When you go through the process, the, the way I went through it, you're surrounded by girls that have been sexually abused and all of our behaviors are very similar in nature. I had recognized that in these kids and I was pointing it out to other people, but I didn't put the responsibility on myself and just simply ask them. So the moment that I did finally ask, it was like the weight of the world had been lifted off their shoulders. I just simply asked, do you ever feel that you have been sexually abused? And instantly in a second, 
this girl broke down crying. You could see like her shoulders slumped down and it was like this huge exhale and she just started crying and telling me everything. I should have asked years before. There's a part in my mind that just became so angry that this happened to them. I was, you know, their aunt and around them on a fairly regular basis. So how could it happen and me not be there to help them? That family member is currently um, in jail or awaiting trial. I'm so tired of watching these kids get hurt, watching this, the secrecy and the silence of it. It's deplorable and I'm tired of watching it. And I don't want to sit around and complain about being tired of watching it. I want to do something. I don't want to just be a complainer. I want to be a person of action. It's more common than we think, unfortunately. Unfortunately, that's what I'm learning. I love that you decided to take what you had been through and use it to give back to help someone. Do, do you currently have a child that you are helping? Oh, I am working on my first case. I'm very lucky to be working on the case that I'm working on because uh, from my understanding, there are some very intense cases to work on, but I'm working with a, a lovely family right now going through the process of everything they need to do to get reunified. I mean, that's the ultimate goal if that's a possibility, is to reunify a family. And like I said, the common misconception is that these children are unloved or unwanted. And not that that isn't always the case. Sometimes families are full of dysfunction and they're full of their own demons that they need to face those head on so that they can be reunified. And that's what's happening in my case. As you've gone along, have you discovered any new triggers that maybe you didn't realize were there? There are things that you're fighting in your mind all the time. If you've lived with abuse or attack or anything, you've, you struggle with it all the time and learned a way of coping and rationalizing with it so that you can live on. Being a guardian ad litem is very special, but as special as it is, it still has its challenges. And one thing that I learned is you do have a support system. And I think that's great. And that is where our guest, Jenny James, comes in today. She is a support system for you, for other guardian ad litems. And I would love for Jenny to share a little bit about what she does and Mary, how it's really benefited you. Well, I feel very fortunate to have met Mary. And I think she knows this. We talk a lot, not only is my job to help guide her, but she's actually, and you can tell from hearing her story, she's taught me a lot about the children we serve and helped give me pointers and things that I didn't realize coming from her unique perspective. I was kind of talking to her about a plan I had to help bring a child in from runaway. And she was like, oh, that's not going to work. She doesn't want to hear that try this. This is what she needs to know. And it's just amazing because it's still a learning process for me. And I love my guardians because as much as I'm here to help them, they bring these unique life experiences that teach me every day too. So it's a wonderful give and take. My job is basically to give support. It's a lot when you first come in and some people get nervous about coming to court and representing the best interest of a child. And we're here, not only me, but we have the most fantastic attorneys. We're a team. We're an advocacy team. The volunteer has me. They have the attorney. We're here to help guide, offer suggestions, 
And it's amazing to see someone like Mary come in. This is her first case, and she won't, she's shy about it, but she has helped her child so much. She's present. She is present in his life. She fought to get him heard by the judge. It was amazing. Gave him a pep talk. He got to tell his truth to the judge. It was life-changing for him, for me too, because I was so proud of her because we were worried that he might not have that courage. And she gave him that support and he was able to give his truth to the judge in private. He was heard. And that's just amazing. That's, that's what we do. We are the voice for the child. Oh, I think that that's great. I love that. And Mary, can you share then? Because apparently you're holding back on how great, <laughs> how great you're doing. And I'm going to put you on the spot. <laughs> it's my first case. So I don't usually feel like I'm doing great. I usually go to um, Jennifer James <laughs> and I'm like, what would you do now? And then she, <laughs> she's like, you know, what I would do now is this, this, and this, and then I, and then that's what I do. So <laughs> normally I, I still have a lot of questions and I, I fall back on Jennifer James advice because she's far more experienced than I am. <laughs> I have to imagine though, that you will always have questions. And I think that's why that having a support system for you is awesome. So, and I think each case is going to be different, extremely different. Uh, listening to some of the other guardians, they have cases that, you know, I haven't come into contact with yet because I've only come into contact with one. <laughs> and, this, and this case has its own layering involved in it that's separate from all the others. What has surprised you the most? I know it's your first one, but the reality is every guardian ad litem is going to have their first one. Is there something that maybe you didn't expect that happened? I would say what has surprised me the most is the need to people please. It's my job to to work for the child and to focus on the child. And then I wasn't really quite prepared for the bombardment of other people in the child's life coming at me with their needs also. And then I have to constantly remind myself that I'm here for the child. You know, I have to focus on the child's needs, you know, so if if mom's upset about this or dad's upset about this or grandma's upset about this, you know, I have to stay focused on what is in the best interest of the child. You know, I do hear them out. And if it's possible and if it aligns with the best interest of the child, then, you know, I'll, uh, I'll put my attention to it. But ultimately, I have to stay focused and I can't be, you know, a people pleaser. I can't make everybody happy. I hear a lot of collaboration between you two and really putting the needs of the child first, which is exactly what it is you're supposed to do, why you're so special and why we need more of them, right? Mary, we got to hear your story and what propelled you into really the passion for being the guardian ad litem. Jenny, do you want to share with us a little bit about how long you've been doing, what, what you're doing, and maybe something that inspired you to get where you are today? Absolutely. I have been with the program five years. I was a volunteer previously, much like Mary. My children have left the nest and I knew I just wasn't done helping children yet. I had a lot more to give. So I have several friends that were involved in this program who knew me. I had just gone through a divorce and gotten a degree, my master's in psychology. And they were like, this program is just for you. This is where you need to be. So I started volunteering and 
it's it's addictive. Just loved it. And I kept taking more cases and taking more cases and helping these children. And I started out with babies and found out that I actually loved working with teenagers. And that's kind of my passion here. I love helping teens and the relationship. It's amazing. Then a job opportunity came up and I just love the program so much. I was like, I would love to come do this. And it's just expanded my horizon to get to meet wonderful people like Mary and incredible people like Cynthia. Everyone who's involved in our program has this passion to help children. It's kind of what unites us. It's that one thing we all have this desire to help children. And I just, I can't speak enough about the people I work with. It's just amazing. Do you have a particular memory with a child since you've had more cases that has just stuck with you? Yes, I still have the case. It's an ongoing case still. She got sent to live with her father. And I was devastated because I loved seeing her. I was happy for her, but it became a dangerous situation. And before she left, we came up with a code word that she could use if we were on the phone and things weren't good. And she couldn't say to me, hey, this isn't right. So we were on the phone and she said the word and she said, I'm in trouble and I need help. The case manager and I were able to get the police, get on the phone with the police out of state, get them to do a well check. And we found that the child was being abused and we got her removed from the parent and got her to safety. And it was, I still to this day, it's something I feel very proud of that we were able to have that trust with her, that she trusted me enough to know that I would get her out of trouble if she needed it. And we were able to do that. It's the trust we build with these children. I think Mary said it specifically. They know we are there for them. It's just a very different relationship from any of the other organizations they come in contact with. Because we are there to hear them. It isn't about what mom or dad want. We're really listening and able to do things to help that child. And I think that's what makes us unique and makes that relationship so special with these children. They know they can count on their guardian. Yeah. Now, in that instance, was she required to call and check in? We check in monthly with our kids. Usually most of us do it more often. It's you'd build a relationship. So she didn't have to tell me. I mean, she didn't, but she felt she needed to. And that's, like I said, building that relationship and having that trust and have her know that if she needed help, I would get it. It's an honor. It's a privilege that I carry today. I love that you used a code word. Is that standard practice then for you all? Or I was just thinking on my feet at that moment, <laughs> just what I could do because I knew it might be hard for her. And I'm sure Mary can speak to that too. Speaking about abuse in front of the people that are perpetrating, it's, it's not always possible. So I just thought, well, if I could come up with a way for her to tell me something's wrong, if she can't say it. So that's just kind of something we came up with before she left. Have you ever thought of what it is like to be a child in a courtroom? When a child is removed from their home because of abuse, abandonment, or neglect, the Guardian Ad Litem Office advocates for the child's best interests and represents them in court and in the community. 
The office uses a multidisciplinary team consisting of an attorney, a trained volunteer, and a child advocate manager. Not only do they provide support and request services needed to change children's lives positively, but they also bring comfort and warm smiles during difficult times. The Guardian Ad Litem office focuses on the child's legal needs and makes sure their voices are heard. Their focus is solely on the child. If you are passionate about children and want to make a difference in a child's life, you can help by becoming a Guardian Ad Litem volunteer. To learn more, reach out to recruiter Cynthia Rickard at 321 271 1304 or visit www.guardianadlitem.org. How do you deal with a case or situation where, let's say, a judgment has been made and the child is reunified with one of the parents, but inside your instincts are like, I'm not okay with this. This doesn't feel right. I feel like they're in danger. But this is the ruling that has come down. How do you deal with that, with with not really feeling okay inside, but yet you have to follow these rules? Well, part of ours, we have to respect the process here. So if the judge feels it's time and we have to respect that, and I do, but I am vigilant. I do my visits. I talk privately with the child. You know, we do have the ability to take the child out on outings. So maybe we'll go for a walk or maybe we'll go for ice cream and I'll get a chance to get a clearer picture. Uh, We observe visits. We are in the home. We're present. So you do get to have a check and balance. That's great. What has been your biggest takeaway since you started working with Mary? How incredibly giving our volunteers She's exemplifies just giving of herself, her time, her knowledge. I'm blown away daily by what I see from our volunteers. They're just incredible. The amount of time and dedication they give to these children, they inspire me daily, like I said. And so, Mary, for you, what is your biggest takeaway thus far from working with Jenny and soaking up all of her experience? Honestly, I don't know where she gets her energy or time from. She works on a lot of cases. Like currently I have one and uh, I'm still trying to wrap my brain around all of it. And I'm like, where in the world is she finding the time and energy for all of these cases? And that's why we really need more volunteers. So like uh, someone like me, I'm new, so I, I can only take on one case while I'm learning when if we don't get more volunteers, then people have to take on more than, you know, a, a lot of cases and they don't have the time and energy to spread out like they want to and really focus. We're a volunteer based organization. So that's our focus. We want to get as many wonderful people like Mary assigned to these wonderful children. Cynthia, who is the recruiter, because as both of these ladies agreed, is there is not enough volunteers. So you play a very essential role in helping children as well. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what inspired you to join this program? So I had been at home with my kids 
till they kind of got a little bit older. And I decided I wanted to go back to work, but of course do something meaningful. And so I actually started with the Guardian at Lightem program as a legal secretary and then moved into the volunteer role, which is really where my heart is. I love people. I love getting out into the community and just spreading the word and then having that one-on-one interview with the people that come forward and just building relationships. And how do you find volunteers? What we have found is that word of mouth truly is our number one way of recruiting more people because, you know, like Mary will say, oh my goodness, this has really transformed my life. You know, she'll talk about maybe something that's motivated her. And so it encourages other people to step forward. But we're also out in the community. And obviously during COVID, we weren't. But just recently, we were able to get out, say, to farmers markets, to libraries. So wherever we can get plugged in, we go. And when you're talking to people, what is the biggest objection, I suppose you could say, as to why they feel they could not become a guardian ad litem? I think for most people, they think, do you need a special like credential or I'm not a parent, right? And I'm going to be dealing with kids. And so they might feel like they might not be a good fit for our program. But all you really need is an open heart and an open mind. And then we are going to give you the trainings to empower you to just be the best advocate possible. Mm -hmm. Can you explain a little bit about what that process is like? Like, let's say tomorrow somebody came to you and said, you know what, I want to be a guardian ad litem. What do I need to do? How long is the process? You do need to be 21 and pass a level two background check that is free of charge to you. And then we are going to provide you with all of these trainings. So it's, it's a comprehensive training. It's 30 hours. But the beauty of that training is that you get to do it at home, on your computer, on your schedule, and what works for you, right? So we have people that are retired and can get those trainings to me in two weeks. Then we have other people that maybe aren't empty nesters, but their kids are older, they're teenagers, and they delegate maybe you know, two, three hours every weekend to get those trainings done. And that might take them two months. We give people six months in which to complete everything. Once they're done with a portion of those trainings, they're going to attend an all-day event that we call a pre-service. And they're going to meet with our trainer. And I'm also there. And they're going to pretty much get an overview of everything that they've learned from, you know, what it means to be a volunteer, what it means to be abused, abandoned, and neglected. They're going to learn about child welfare and so much more in that process. The trainer will give them county-specific information for court. Uh, They'll go over how to write a judicial review report. After the training, you're now in your provisional phase, and you can actually pick a case. And that's what's so beautiful about our program is we don't give you a case. You actually get to pick one. So, you know, if your heart gravitates towards a seven-year-old girl and you read a little synopsis of what she's been through and you want to help her, you can do that. And I love that. So at that point, you get to pick your case. And now we're going to give you a mentor for 60 days because we know that's when you have the most questions. They go with you on that first visit. They just wrap their arms around you and help you get through that. After the 60 days, they go away, but you're still part of that team. Like Jennifer James, you know, she's our CAM. So on the team, it'll be the volunteer. 
It'll be the child advocate manager that we call a CAM for short. And like she said, you know, she's their go-to person, their sounding board. Whatever they need, she's there for them. And then you're also going to be given that attorney, you know, for any of the legal issues that may arise in the case. And they are with you the entire time. You're never, ever, ever alone in this journey. That's so important. And, you know, you answered my question because I was curious as to how a child is assigned. And I think it's great that the guardian ad litem gets to pick the case. Like you said, it may be a child that calls out to them or they feel connected to. I think that that's great. How many people do you need right now for every child to have a volunteer? Well, we have currently 1,046 kids in care. Not all of those have volunteers. I don't have specific numbers, but what I will say is that we definitely do not have enough volunteers for each child to have that one-on-one person in their life. And it's just so important because, you know, as Mary was saying, if we don't have a volunteer, then the CAMs take on those cases. They have so many kids they work with. They may not be able to give them that one-on-one attention that is so needed. A volunteer is able to do that, right, through those visits. And, you know, all we ask is that you meet with your child once a month. That is the commitment level that we're asking. Now, obviously, if you want to meet them more than once a month, we, we love that idea. We can pick up the phone. We can FaceTime them depending on their age. You know, if they're teenagers, those are the kids I work with. We text a lot because that's what makes them happy, right? We need a lot of volunteers and we also need a lot of male volunteers. A lot of our uh, population is women. We love our women, but men are also needed because a lot of these children come from broken homes and they don't have a father figure. Or if they do, he may not be an ideal father figure. And so having a man in their life that can be positive, you know, they can educate, nurture, guide them, love them. I mean, what we can do with our children is so big, right? The world is our oyster once we get our child. We can do so much for them. And so there is a need because so many of our kids do not have that one-on-one volunteer with them. Yes. As a volunteer, you have the ability to do so much for that child. How do you not become attached to the child that you help, that you just want to take care of them like forever? Well, I I mean, I don't think you don't become attached to them. (laughs) I, I love the child that I'm working with right now. I think there's always going to be a level of attachment and that kind of helps propel you forward because you are filling in a spot in their life where they need somebody to feel attached to them. They need somebody to feel like they want to fight for them. That's what they need. And so, you know, part of that is is just sort of embracing that feeling, you know, like I'm here for them. This is why I'm here and get to know them, embrace it. And, you know, move forward with that feeling in mind, because that's what they need. And you you often transition from being a guardian ad litem to just natural support in their life. I have cases, early cases I have that some of my girls are now moms and I've got to enjoy baby showers, seeing the birth of their first child. That relationship extends. You don't 
really have to let it go. It depends on the child. If they still want me to talk and we share joys and sorrows in their lives from here on out, I'm very open to that. You bond. I think Mary said it. You just bond. And so we do often transition into that natural support later in life. Have you ever had a situation where the child reunification was not possible, but also they were not able to find their forever home and they ended up aging out of foster care? Have you ever had to personally experience that? I have. It's difficult when that happens, but we have great resources that you come in contact through working. We have extended foster programs that help them get free college, assistance with housing, cars, driver's license. So you get to watch them blossom into an adult. It's hard when reunification doesn't happen, but it doesn't mean it's the end of the road and they have to give up. We we offer and try to support to make the best situation possible for them to start adulthood with that leg up education, housing, assistance. The Guardian Ad Litem Office is an organization where the actions of a single individual can have a profound impact on the life of a child. Would you like to be an integral part of the solution? Be that one individual trained and empowered to advocate for the best interests of a child? If your heart is saying yes, please reach out to recruiter Cynthia Rickard. She can be reached at 321-271-1304 or visit www.guardianatlitem.org. There is no better time than right now. You know, if anyone's listening right now and they're you know, their heartstrings are being pulled and they're like, you know, I'd like to take the next step. You know, look up the Guardian at Lightem program because like I said, there is a huge need for volunteers right now. Not all of our children have one-on-one volunteers. And we are that one constant person in their life that they can count on. So when we say, we're going to call you Saturday at 10, we do that. We say, we're going to take you um, to the beach. We do that. For a lot of kids, we're that first person in their life that is that way with them. So just look up the Guardian at Lightem program, or you can go to www.guardianatlightem.org and just start your application. You know, make a difference in a child's life. Great. And if somebody, it's it's just not possible for them to become a Guardian at Lightem, in what other ways can they help you? We have a Facebook page. We are actually in the 18th Circuit, Brevard County, but you can follow us on Facebook because we have a lot of posts and sometimes people just share them. Like I'll be out in the community and they'll let somebody know, hey, Cynthia's going to be, you know, at the Palm Bay Library and they can send someone to talk to me while I'm there. Uh, We also have brochures that if people have a private business and they would like to display that, they can definitely help us. So those are some other ways that they can get plugged in and just spread the word, even if they're not um, ready to be a volunteer or the timing isn't right. Because as we all know, it's all about timing. Like, you know, Mary was saying she started at 19, then ended up as a guardian at maybe 45. Right. So it's all about timing. 
you know, but we can plant a seed in people's hearts and it can grow. And when it's ready to bloom, they can reach out to us. Well, I think what people don't realize when they think of foster care, foster children is they see a child who's in a home that's being, say, abused, and now the child's been taken out. And I think people stop thinking after that because they say, oh, okay, great, the child's taken care of. But what they don't realize is this child's life now has been turned upside down. You know, imagine going to court, you know, how scary that's got to be for a child It's just kind of topsy-turvy for them. And so having that volunteer is so important. There were many of times that I remember going to court and never speaking to anybody about upcoming court appearances until about 30 minutes before we walked in the court. Like I would arrive there with my um, foster family or my group home or whatever, and then go into a small room and talk to someone I never spoke to before. And then this person introduces themselves as my lawyer, but I don't, I've never spoke to them before. I'm speaking to them right before court and they're telling me uh, sort of a brief overview of what's about to happen. And then you rush in there and everybody's talking, but nobody's asking you any questions. Everybody's talking. They're talking over you. They're talking about you. A lot of the times I really, really remembered not agreeing with anything that they were saying in there. For example, it felt like a lot of things were over exaggerated than what they, you know, than what they really were. But it was like everybody was trying to nail in a a point of how horrible, how terrible this family is or this situation is. And it often missed the mark on what the reality of what it was. But I didn't have the representation to, to fight back and say, no, none of that's true. That's not what happened. And I think you made a really good point. You said a lot of times people think a child's placed into foster care and that's it, we're done. But that's really just the beginning of the journey. And that's where we come in. There's that whole what's next. You know, are the parents going to do what they need to do to be reunified? Is it not going to happen? Are rights going to be terminated? And that's, there's just this whole journey ahead. And that's where I think we're so important The child needs guidance through that whole journey. It's not the end. It's the beginning. Thank you so much, ladies. Your message is impactful and your contributions to our community and the children even more so. So I thank you so much for everything you do. Thank you for having me today. I really appreciate the chance to talk. Yes. Thank you for having us. Thank you for letting us talk about what we're passionate and the children that we care about and I just hope that everyone's listening. You will come volunteer with us, and I look forward to meeting you soon. Thank you for having me. Uh, It's always wonderful just to be able to spread the word as to what our program does, so thank you. This is Jen Lee, creator and host of I Need Blue, Survivors Talk Surviving. To find additional stories, you can visit www.ineedblue.net. And remember, you are stronger than you think. 